Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello and welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. My name is Romain Schiffer. And I'm Luba Timoyana. Today on the podcast, we're changing things a little. Not only do we have one guest, we have two. We're having a conversation with our good friend and colleague here at the Arctic Institute, Gregor Sharp, and my friend and my colleague as well at Durham University, Christian Jury. Both are currently writing their PhDs on Arctic exploration from different angles and perspectives. Greg at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada, and Christian, as I said, at Durham University in the UK. And we thought it would be a good idea to have a chat with the two of them together. Greg, Christian, thanks for accepting our invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Roman. Let's start with you, Greg. If you only had two minutes to summarize your own research, what would you say to people? Uh, I'd say they probably need more time, to be honest. Yeah, so I want to actually maybe start by acknowledging that my research takes place on the ancestral, traditional, and unceded territory of the Coastal Salish peoples, and that I'm very grateful to be here as an uninvited settler, and that I appreciate that I am part of a colonial institution, and there are responsibilities as part of that to help decolonize. And so that is part of my research. But just broadly speaking, my research deals with the notions of theorizing international relations, uh, specifically with regarding how exploration comes into play. And so that comes into, or that, that kind of factors in three specific regards. So one, the policy implications of exploration. Two, the conditions under which uh, narratives and practices involved in exploration change. And then third, tying it back to the first point, kind of a post-colonial critique that applies to both the discipline of international relations, uh, but also how we understand and practice exploration. What about you, Christian? Thanks, Roman, and uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Yeah, following on from what Greg had to say, um, my research is based in the history department here in Durham, and really I'm looking at what you might call the um, place of the Arctic in the British imagination in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So I'm looking at various textual and visual representations of of the Arctic as a place where people travelled, um, particularly looking at travel writing, textual accounts of, of different expeditions. I'm quite interested in moving sort of beyond the, the uh, grand exploration narratives of, say, the Franklin expedition and looking more at smaller scale travel. So I'm quite interested in looking at tourists going to places like northern Norway and how they draw on um, the language and the discourses of exploration and the Arctic more broadly to uh, think about their place in the world and, of course, thinking about Britain in the late 19th century, um, imperialism and empire is an important part of that, both in the Arctic and beyond, and thinking about how that intersects with other other forms of colonialism in the Arctic is is also part of my project, as well as, of course, the legacies uh, that we see today. Thanks, Christian. I really think that we have amazing topics to discuss today. I would like to start actually exploring your pers- personal paths <laughs> to this topic. And my question is, why Arctic and why Arctic exploration? So what drew you to this topic? Why uh, did you become so interested and so excited about that? So in terms of why the Arctic, I have always kind of had it in the back of my mind. I mean, growing up here in Canada, um, there is a notion or an idea that Canada is a northern country. And I always just assumed that related to the Arctic. And it was only later that I kind of delved into the critical studies and then kind of dissected that and and realized that there's a lot more going on. Uh, And so the Arctic is in the back of mind and then... A few years ago, I did an internship at the Canadian Embassy in Iceland and got to see the policy side of things and was absolutely fascinated. And so kind of 
the natural progression in my mind was to combine that policy side of things with this kind of lingering cultural fascination uh, with the North in the form of a PhD. And so that's where I started really naively with, honestly, not much of an idea of what I wanted to do. And uh, initially started with the concept and idea of the frontier and realized that what I was actually more interested in studying was exploration and the way that exploration created frontiers. Uh, so what about you, Christian? What was your path to your topic? So I think that um, possibly like lots of Arctic researchers, I've always had an interest in uh, places that are that are cold and snowy and um, possibly a little bit tricky to go to sometimes. I've I had, uh, well, I still have family in Scandinavia when I was growing up, so I was fortunate enough to visit there, including um northern Norway and the mountains of the area around Tromsø and Finnmark. And so I kind of got a, a taste of the Arctic in that sense myself. And from a more sort of intellectual point of view, I suppose I've been interested in travel and the way that intersects with what we might call imaginative geographies, um, the way people think about other places. And so for my my master's dissertation, I actually wrote on um history of Mount British mountaineering in the 19th century, um, specifically in the Caucasus. And then when the opportunity to do a do a PhD came up, one of the places I looked at was Durham and, and the Durham Arctic Project. And I think I thought that I could take some of those things that I talked about in that, some of the notions of exploration that Greg was talking about, but also kind of the cultural aspects of this around, around gender and around the colonial intersections of these kind of these kind of journeys and apply it in a in an arctic context hopefully i do a good job i think that it's there's certainly uh commonalities there and it's something that i've i'm interested in picking up on so yeah that's kind of how i ended up here thanks a lot both we always talk about those colonial and exploration narratives of the uh, late 19th century beginning of the 20th century but to what extent these narratives influence or shape the way we view the arctic today and perhaps the broader geopolitics of the arctic today yeah thanks Roma. that that is truly a, a massive question so i will endeavor to tackle it in a concise way and, and try not to ramble too much but just if i could draw out two points, I would say, for one, if you look at Canada's national identity and the way that Canada presents itself as an Arctic player, it's deeply, deeply rooted in Arctic narratives. Uh, we draw our history and legacy back to British exploration. Of course, the discovery of Franklin's uh, ships were a, a very big deal here in Canada. The government at the time, the Harper administration, Uh, invested huge sums of money in it, and it, it really became part of the the Conservative Party's brand. And it's one that's had an enduring popularity in Canada. Um, but of course, those those connections, that historical link is entirely fabricated, and it's drawing back to those old, old colonial uh, power relations and, and stuff that uh, there's actually a very interesting scholar at the University of Ottawa, Janice Cavell, who, who really digs into it and shows how this recent Canadian Arctic identity really wrapped up in those, those uh, predominantly British exploration narratives is entirely a fabrication to serve president, presentist purposes. So that's, that's one point that I draw. And then the second way, if I re recall the question correctly, was how uh, colonial or imperial narratives shape how we understand the Arctic presently. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's everywhere, it's inescapable the entire, I mean, the national systems that govern Arctic territories, but also the international relations of the Arctic are fundamentally predicated on imperial structures. Uh, and just to give you one example, like if we think of how we understand land in the Arctic, and currently when we think about exploration in the Arctic, it's often the context of resource development, right? You're, you're exploring to identify hydrocarbon deposits or Or in northern Canada, there's a much talk of gold and, and diamonds and stuff like that. So that's, that is the exploration narrative that is that's quite prominent currently. But that is obviously a form of understanding and approaching the land that is predicated on kind of Western capitalist structures that came over with colonialism. And we see clashes across the Arctic between that way of perceiving and understanding and practicing or uh, operating on the land uh, 
and indigenous ways of being, right, which don't break the land down into easily parceled categories in order to be exploited. Thanks, Greg. What about you, Christian? I also know you explore those ideas of modernity and colonial narratives as well. Maybe in a British context, it might differ, but how do you think it influenced our visions of the Arctic today? Thanks, Roman. And um, really, I think I just want to build on what Greg said. I think he gave a very good summary of how these these colonial ideas still permeate our understanding of, of space and place and resources in the Arctic. I suppose the two things I'd pick up on, um, coming perhaps from more of a, a British perspective, I think the British angle is possibly more one that sees the Arctic still as a as a blank space, quote unquote blank space, one that's often very much depopulated. So it's sort of there's a there's an erasure of the indigenous presence that we see in the Arctic, and one consequence of that is that it's seen as kind of this partly a neutral space and also a space where people can test themselves. There's kind of no, there's no resistance there apart from the elements. And this is something you see in the Antarctic as well. And the British kind of um, tradition of, of exploration there that's still very prominent in the, in the national imaginary. So I'd say, yeah, there's still this idea that the Arctic is somehow, somehow empty and blank. And I think that the second point I come to on to as part of that is the idea that it's also static and unchanging. The idea that Arctic peoples, when they're thought about, and also the Arctic landscape itself, are seen as having not changed or being outside of history in some way. Um, and this kind of temporal aspect is seen even in kind of well-intentioned narratives around, for example, climate change. The idea that the Arctic is changing now, and this is the first time it's ever, something like that has ever happened, and that it's sort of coming into history thanks to thanks to a warming climate. And I think that these these are quite pernicious in some ways. These are these are narratives we need to challenge. But I do think they're they're very prevalent. I think even, as I said, well intentioned and and well informed narratives can still still play into these these stereotypes around the Arctic. Um, and these are very much come out of the the um colonial exploration of the Arctic, the sense of of the it as a place that needed to be explored and mapped. And also the the um, colonial idea of it, the tr- journey to the Arctic itself being a journey through time to somewhere that's either outside of time or quote unquote backward. I mean, I, I see so many parallels in the idea of the the Arctic as a blank space. With, uh, I mean, Canadian literature in particular is predicated on this notion that the North is a blank canvas upon which predominantly white males can go and prove their masculinity and prove their service to empire. And and that's historically been the case. And it it manifests in many ways today as well. And I think there's an interesting parallel uh, we touched upon a little bit earlier with the frontier and the way the frontier manifests in the American experience as well. Uh, And then on the second point of of, uh, resisting that notion that the Arctic is unchanging, I think that's super, super important. And in particular, we need to resist kind of the the settler move to essentialize and romanticize indigenous peoples and their way of being and, and acknowledge that they are, of course, free to choose uh, how they, they seek to pursue their future in the Arctic without interference from settlers. And of course, I need to here acknowledge my position as a settler scholar based in the South talking about the Arctic and being very conscious about that in terms of how I speak about the Arctic and and how I act about it. To follow up on this idea of reflecting on our positionality as researchers, I want to dive a little bit more into that because it's like the everyday of research, right? And I want to ask you uh, both how you deal with that, how you do your research knowing that you're male researchers, right? Having some kind of a privilege, Uh, doing research on Arctic exploration that has been a masculine space for many, many years. How do you work with that? It's a difficult question. Um, I guess that as a a white British man who is asked, who comes to to these debates, I guess, yeah, as you say, with an awareness of, of my privilege and an awareness that people will sometimes judge your research as insufficiently critical perhaps. I think that's something you have to be 
aware of. And I think you, I suppose I'm happy that people are sometimes a little wary of, of the fact that I'm doing research about Arctic exploration, and I completely understand why. I think in Britain, there is this kind of assumption that, that if you're doing um, work on this kind of thing, then perhaps it is going to be um, sort of uh, valorizing exploration or talking about, about uh, heroism and uh, why this was this was sort of these were great achievements for the nation. Partly because I think there's a national discourse that still suggests that they were, and there are enough people doing uh, popular histories of exploration that are uncritical. And so perhaps someone in a more academic context like myself doing that research, um, even if you're trying to push back against those kind of narratives, uh, you're always going to be seen as kind of um, involved with them in some way. Something I've been trying to do um, is trying to include more sort of historical Indigenous voices in my research, which is not always easy because they're not always as easy to find as, say, the more conventional sources that a historian is more comfortable using the kind of standard archival letters, diaries, published materials. So in some ways it is challenging, and I think that it's something we have to have to work hard to include. I'm not sure if I have concrete answers on how to do it, and I think that's possibly possibly shouldn't be up to me to decide what what Arctic history looks like in the future, and that's maybe a good thing. Yeah, I think I think that perhaps this slightly rambling answer has given you an indication that these are these are kind of difficult things that you have to have to grapple with, and it's not always uh, easy to to come up with a good solution. Greg, do you want to try and say something else? Yeah, no, Christian, I think that was that was great. And I, I I mean, I applaud the question. I truthfully don't think we question our positionality as scholars enough, in particular, in the domain in which I predominantly operate international relations. There's certainly not a lot of questions of, of our positionality and how that plays into our research. So excellent question. In terms of whether or not I have an excellent answer, I'm not so sure. It's obviously a big, big question, as Christian highlighted. And I guess where I would start is that I always reflect upon the implications of my actions and always ask myself whether or not there is the potential for harm from what I do and then adjust my research and my path as a scholar accordingly. Um, And in that sense, I have been, I've sought out and been very fortunate to receive a fair amount of training, in particular in, in Indigenous methodologies, uh, which I found very useful for situating myself uh, in the larger Arctic uh, literature and my role within it. Uh, in particular, resisting, I, like I, I must admit that when I first started, I was very naively proceeded and, and the way I'd structured my project was in retrospect, not great, but through the process of learning and, and, and uh, uh, taking classes, learning more about Indigenous methodologies, I, I have been able to adjust accordingly. And in particular, I want to highlight the need for, for my personal desire to resist what I call insertion strategies. And so instead of just inserting Indigenous voices into a Western framework, either, I mean, first of all, seeking to decolonize the framework through which our research proceeds, but also just um, not taking up the the space that Indigenous scholars and and peoples should be occupying uh, and being aware of the space that I'm taking up, and also working towards an acknowledgement uh, of different ontologies, right? So, So practicing ontological switching. So instead of forcing different views into a Western scholarly framework, opening up the possibility to engage with views grounded in fundamentally different ways of perceiving the world, different worldviews. And so that, that's a little bit abstracted, and I'm still struggling with how to implement that um, in my work and in my research going forward. Um, and then on a final note, just a very different uh, take. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to, or, or endeavoring, I guess is a better word, to make Arctic research a little more queer. And I think that is certainly a perspective that's missing and one that I'm very excited to see emerge in the future. I think it's quite uh, tough to really include these methodologies and these approaches and practice them uh, on an everyday basis. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this notion that, I mean, in particular, I see in the natural sciences, the insertion of traditional knowledge into those frameworks 
But there's always the underlying question as to what extent it's being taken seriously, whether or not it's being valued at the same level, uh, if you will, as Western-derived scientific knowledge. And I mean, there's a a huge body of of, um, kind of post-colonial, decolonial, indigenous literature that speaks exactly to that point. Um, yeah, so it's. I think it's absolutely fascinating, and and like you highlighted, interdisciplinary. It, it applies on on all aspects of of uh, Arctic research. I think we need to be aware of the fact that our voice is not the only voice, and there are several voices out there as well. And take all the, those voices into account, uh, be them uh, local people who live in the Arctic, but also indigenous people, um, indigenous communities, and not only because they're they are indigenous, but also because they are people who experience the Arctic and the changing of the Arctic as well, which I think it's important. We've seen this narrative of a of a scramble for the Arctic uh, in recent years. How do we? How do you tackle this in 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 your research? How do you? I mean, how do you think Arctic explorations and our ideas of the Arctic have shaped this narrative? I guess if I could pick up on that first, um, and. Greg might well have more to say than me about this, as he's slightly more um, international relations focused. But I think it's sort of uh, quite an important thing of, about when we're thinking about these kind of issues about who can who lays claim to the Arctic or all these other kind of grand geopolitical terms. Is kind of making making this kind of framework a bit unfamiliar, and I think this is something we can do with with exploration as well. And this kind of goes back to what we were previously saying about, about an awareness of our positions and about other perspectives is that making um, making the idea that people, say, with the historical example, making the idea that people sailed out into the pack ice and got themselves stuck there, sort of make it seem as odd as it sounds when you put it like that. Um, I think this kind of defamiliarity with it can be really valuable in in thinking about the the ideologies, I suppose, behind it, um, and be that using um, indigenous sources that kind of reveal the the strangeness of of white men arriving in the Arctic, um, or whether it's just thinking about kind of the the experiences of the travellers themselves and and how much they they were willing to put themselves through. It kind of defamiliarizes our understanding of Arctic exploration. And I think it would be worth extending that to thinking about geopolitics. Um, I think we can normalize these ideas around sort of uh, spheres of influence and areas of control and laying claim to uh, areas of of either ice or open water or seabed. Um, And I think sort of it can be quite, quite, uh, fruitful to resist some of those those framings and readings. Yeah, just just picking up on everything that Christian said. I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, and if kind of we bring it back to exploration and the notion that exploration is about an unknown and the process of getting to know that unknown, which of course, as we've discussed uh, at length, is, is wrapped up in many colonial and imperial processes. Um, if we kind of extrapolate that to our current situation in the Arctic, uh, of course, we're at a, a time and a place where we have satellites constantly circling the globe. We know more about the Arctic than perhaps we ever have at any other point in, the, uh, in history and from many, many different perspectives as well, right? And so to frame the Arctic as this mysterious northern frontier battleground I think is a truly impressive exercise in willed ignorance. It's not that we don't know about the Arctic or that we don't, or we couldn't know about what's actually going on. But I mean, for a lack of a better way of putting it, it's far more sexy, right? To have this, this uh, frontier at the top of the world where, where anything goes, you know? And, and I mean, there are a variety of reasons that we could parse out as to why that's the case. But I think if we uh, move on to the implications, framing the Arctic in this way, in this narrative, uh, justifies certain actions, right? It justifies military conquest. It justifies um, pushing the limits of international law. And anyone who is involved in researching the Arctic knows that there is this, this 
narrative that's carried in particular in, in certain media outlets, um, but also that this narrative has been very effectively resisted by those on the ground, local communities, indigenous communities, scholars, um, and that that narrative doesn't necessarily correspond to what is happening in the Arctic. And so uh, truly, I do think it is an exercise in willed ignorance. Um, and yeah, kind of tying back to our last point, I think uh, this is a good space in which we as scholars from outside of the Arctic uh, can consider how we can be good allies and amplifying the voices of those in the Arctic who are seeking to resist this narrative. Uh, thinking about this uh, narrative and the fact that lots of uh, media like all over the world, that they really like to pick up the, the idea of the scramble for the Arctic or like, you know, tensions in the Arctic. And they really like, you know, to go really deep in this drama. Every time I see this uh, narrative still being so prevalent and persistent, I wonder how, <laughs> how many studies, how many PhD students, how many years would it take to actually switch this narrative and to grapple with it and to somehow change it? Do you have any ideas, uh, Greg and Christian, how we could do that? Because we can spend years on studying, right? But seeing this narrative all the time and hearing it all the time, it really seems that it's so urgent to do something about that. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great question. Um, and unfortunately, one that I don't have a very optimistic answer to. I truthfully am skeptical that we'll ever be able to overcome uh, this notion of romanticizing the Arctic or certain spaces just generally, right? Um, and I think that's revealed through a, a more in-depth look at the history of exploration. And I'm sure Christian will have more on this, but the ways in which the Arctic has been framed and perceived and imagined um, in the West have varied dramatically from John Dee's ideas of uh, Arthurian colonies in the 1500s to the notion that there was a giant whirlpool at the top of the world that would suck ships in. You know, there is a propensity for human imagination and for that imagination to expand beyond uh, our perceived or what we experience and perceive in a certain space. And so basically that was a long-winded way of saying that I, I think no matter what happens, there will always be these alternate narratives. And, and this one I think is especially pernicious and, and dangerous because of the implications or the potential implications of it. And so I do think that we need to to resist it and, and mitigate it. But to what extent we can fully uh, neutralize any um, different visions or ideas, for lack of a better way of putting it, of the Arctic, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical. And I mean, when you turn to the U.S. currently and the the rise of high conspiracy and its place its prominent place in U.S. politics. I think it is here to stay. That sounds quite sad, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't. Uh, I, mean, I, I think the, the bright side of this is that it is being so effectively resisted, right? And that the Arctic isn't this northern battleground and that people have shown that actually it's an, like an exceptional space in the sense that uh, there's coexistence between different communities, that there's cooperation, uh, that there are, I don't know, special diplomatic bonds. And uh, I mean, you can look at all different levels. And so even though, even though my previous comment could be perceived as quite pessimistic, I think there are so many reasons to be hopeful. And I am hopeful. I guess following on from Greg, I, mean, I agree with what he says, really, that it's, there's, there's hope, but also there's a long history of, um, of the Arctic being, being imagined as a certain kind of space that, um, that's both romantic but also fraught I guess I mean maybe I would say this as someone who works in a history department but I think there's an importance to learning the sort of the accurate history of of the Arctic from whichever perspective that might be but um, I think someone like Andrew Stuhl's work is really valuable in in reminding us that these narratives about the new north are not new um, that these sort of supposedly unprecedented situations that arise in the Arctic are 
not unprecedented and that um, these kind of these discourses of, of scramble and resource extraction and uh, geopolitical competition um, aren't arising now for the first time. I mean, there's a different element with, with um, climate change, as we were saying, but again, change in the Arctic is not something that's, that hasn't happened before. And I think that kind of understanding that, that depth of history in, in the region um, is informative in that it stops us, stops us thinking it's unprecedented sort of crisis situation that we're facing. I mean, in many ways, climate change is indeed a, a crisis situation, but it's not, its impacts in the Arctic are not um, unprecedented or perhaps even unique. So again, that's possibly not a, not an optimistic answer, but I think there's a there's room there to think more critically about these narratives by reminding ourselves that these are not the first time these these ideas have come around. I think that's a very good point, especially putting the change in Arctic and the the changes that we're observing now that are seen in many ways as critical, right? That putting them in this historical context as saying that this is not the first time. But do you actually think that this change in Arctic, the melting Arctic, could be this turning point in the broader narrative of Arctic exploration and, um, yeah, in the narrative of Arctic actually coming to history and changing the way it is seen? Possibly, I guess. Um, I think it's difficult to say. Um... If we, for example, talk about the international relations and how it is um, discussed there. Yeah, uh, the I mean the the short answer is yes. I do think it is a turning point, or it is part of a larger process of change. And here, I'd like to really underline Christian's point that change is always ongoing, and that the Arctic has undergone many changes um, from many different perspectives uh, throughout its history. Right, and so that this is just one more change in that longer term process. And so, when put in that long perspective, it's it's less. Yeah, it's, it's less momentous than it is being framed uh, currently in the media. And I, I do think it is a, a moment of change, but not in the way that the battleground or the Arctic is this, this source of conflict narrative would have us believe. Like, I don't think we're going to see Russian bombers coming over the North Pole to capture... Uh, yellow knife or something like that uh, which I mean at some point if you read some of the major newspapers here in Canada you might actually believe that right um, instead I think the change is the ways in which local communities indigenous communities um, take control of their future in in a more um, aggressive way I mean here I'm speaking particularly at the Canadian experience but Ottawa ruled the north as a pseudo colony for many 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 decades until quite recently in fact and so we're seeing finally the dismantling of that system and the ability of these these northern communities to take control in their own hands and write their own histories their own futures which uh, has me very optimistic because there's a ton of smart people out there doing so many cool projects which unfortunately we just don't hear about because we're all terrified that the russians are going to invade the north I think what I might add to that, and I, I, I agree with what Greg's saying, definitely I think there's some really important points there, is that in terms of travel and tourism, which is a way that in which lots of lots of people who aren't from the Arctic experience it, there's always been a sense that the Arctic has changed from what you might want it to be. There's never like uh, contact has always been with a with an Arctic that's just lost its its kind of pristine pristine state. So um the idea that that the Arctic uh, has stopped being something it used to be um, is possibly a misleading one, I think. Um, and I think that this is an interesting way that something like travel writing can can inform our perspectives. People who go to the north are always bemoaning that it's not what it was when, before the tourists arrived. Um, and this is kind of a constant refrain in many ways. So I think that this idea that yeah, that we've lost a lost a pristine Arctic that that once existed and now doesn't is again perhaps a little misleading, and also is quite colonial in many ways in the way that it kind of erases an an active indigenous 
history, as well as a more general sort of active participatory Arctic, for want of a better way of putting it. I think that's that's just a, a super interesting point about tourism and its impact and the way it shifts perceptions of the Arctic. And I just think back to, I was reading some uh, newspapers from around the 1890s in, in Canada, and there was an expedition as part of the first international polar year to Fort Ray in Northern Canada. And the British jointly mounted an expedition with Canada and they were absolutely crucified in the media because they were traveling, quote unquote, tourist class. So they weren't real explorers. And that perception of them uh, venturing into the north, but as tourists, served to delegitimize them, which I find very interesting. I think that's a really great point, though, because it's like a vicious circle. On the, on the one hand, there were these people who, who went out there, right? And discovered that place and wanted this place to to be seen like to promote it right so they wanted to bring people in there but at the same time they wanted to keep it pristine and they wanted to keep it in a way empty it seems almost like a cognitive dissonance when you think about that the historian of mountaineering peter hansen has has written really interestingly about this and there's a tension between what he calls a kind of performative modernity this is people going sort of from western europe to various mountain areas but i think you see it in the arctic as well and in the sense that the british or the french or the or the danes or the norwegians go somewhere and they want to demonstrate how modern they are compared to the people they they encounter, be that through technology, through clothing, through sort of various forms of education they might claim. But also it's very much the reason they're going to the Arctic, to the mountains, is to escape from what they see as, as a corrupted homeland, be it through through industrialization or urbanization. Travel is a way to kind of escape from these things at home in the late 19th century that you don't want to see happening or you see as um, affecting the country and you want to escape from the kind of the smog and the urban din by going somewhere. And so there's this kind of tension where on one hand, you want to go somewhere and show the people that you're modern. Um, and on the other hand, you very much want to escape from modernity at home. Um, I suppose it's a bit like the tension between wanting a, a pristine Arctic wilderness to test yourself against, but also taking methodical um, scientific measurements whilst you're there. I guess it's a it's a a feature of of um, exploration and and colonial knowledge gathering more generally. And and I think these ideas are very ingrained in how we think about the Arctic as well. And in my experience, uh, having lived in Iceland, for example, when you see a lot of uh, tourists there and the people people take pictures of themselves in empty landscapes as well, you can have like 50 people on the right and 50 people on the left, but you frame it as though you're testing yourself in an empty environment that has never been explored before, which I think it's also interesting in how Iceland or Greenland maybe now market themselves as those spaces as well in the within the tourism industry. Now that would be a fascinating article to write about how Instagram is implicated in colonial processes of exploration. The visual dimension of this narratives and representations it's it's another under-researched field which has so much to say actually and if i if i'm correct i think christian you said in the very beginning that you do that you have worked with this a little bit in your research photography was a was a key um a key shift in the way that the arctic was depicted i think that um there's always a tension there about whether the photograph kind of it would seem to depict the landscape purely as it is in a very neutral way, but I think, as, as as scholars have been saying for probably decades now, that this is a this is a a misleading way to think about it, and that, that there's always a, an act of of framing and and representing in a certain way, and then and then alteration as well. You see the way that photographs are reproduced in the um, in the media. I mean, starting in the nineteenth century, but probably up until incredibly recently, onto Instagram even, the way that photographs are made to represent a certain kind of Arctic, often depopulated, often often sort of 
expansive white white spaces. Um, I think it suits that imaginary quite well. And I guess the other thing to say would be that that um, there was a certain school of British nineteenth century art that that reveled in creating representations of kind of Arctic exploration. The most famous of which is probably Edwin Lancey's um, "Man Proposes, God Disposes." I think is the title, um, which is on display at Royal Holloway University and shows polar bears clambering over an Arctic shipwreck, and is generally quite gruesome. Um, so, in that sense, there was kind of a, a visual imaginary that begun then and um, has has persisted. And I'm, I think, you know, to think about ways to challenge this as well, and the and the production of indigenous artists more recently, and other ways that that the Arctic has been represented visually that that challenge these kind of colonial discourses and um, visual representations. I think it's definitely something that's there and that it's uh, something to be to be encouraged because I think there's a certain allure to the to the blank the blank landscape to the to the expansive expanse of pristine snow that that still that still draws people to it and I think that problematizing it or decolonizing it in some way if that's possible is certainly something to be um, encouraged. On a side note, I, I have heard that man proposes, God disposes, is actually cursed. I don't know if you can confirm or deny that, Christian. Apparently they have a Union Jack that they bring out and cover it for with exams. Something like that, because a student wants... that. It's, it's sort of student superstition and exam nerves combined with the genuine eeriness of this picture has created a series of urban legends, I think. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it, I I think you're very right to bring it up in that it it speaks very much to a particular era of British imagination and, and how that portrayed the Arctic. And I think it just the I mean the the visual element is is one that we often take for granted and, and don't delve into. When I mean, currently the way we see the Arctic is is filtered predominantly through visuals, right? Uh, what would be the Fox News? headline of the Arctic battlefield if there weren't some uh, pictures of soldiers dramatically practicing in the snow or something like that. And I think that it just, it speaks the way in which exploration has changed over time as well, right? So you start with the Tableau Vivant in London, uh, and that just generated massive um, uh, popular uh, support or interest, I guess is probably a better way of putting it in the Arctic but then as time goes on and you have the mechanization of Arctic exploration, I think it's Marianne Cronin has a very interesting piece about how the perspective of the pilot from above dramatically reshaped how we understood exploration, but also the Arctic. And then, of course, if we extrapolate that to satellites, it's absolutely revolutionized the way we, we understand and interact with the Arctic, uh, the polar orbit being a particularly valuable one. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we could even tie this back to Instagram in the way that it selectively frames and portrays Arctic spaces. I think it is truly fascinating the way uh, the visual plays in and, and one uh, or an aspect that I don't think is often appreciated. What do you think is it with polar environments that we think of them this way, that we think of them as static, empty spaces? I mean, there must be more than just the geographical and, and geophysical characteristics of the environment. I mean, I, I think Christian has brought this up uh, and, and kind of hammered home the point that by portraying Arctic spaces as, as empty, it is a settler move to innocence in that it legitimizes and justifies, justifies um, their possession and theft of the land, right? And if you perceive it as empty, you, you don't have to feel bad about taking it. Um, but then there are, there are, of course, other strands at play, and notably this, this ongoing idea or narrative, uh, narrative strand of conquest against nature, right? And so if you portray nature as you do in uh, Man Proposes, God Disposes as a violent, vicious, and cruel space, then the conquests of the white male explorer become even more impressive. So long story short, it's, it's absolutely round up in multiple colonial or, or imperial processes. I think that's a neat summary from Greg, definitely. I think that there's, this is kind of coming to the crux of what we've been talking about, but the Arctic is not just a 
a geographic space. It's also a, a social, political, cultural one. And a lot of the contemporary um, understandings of the Arctic have their roots in historical interpretations of the Arctic through these various lenses. And these are lenses that were that were products of largely Western colonial ways of seeing, often quite literally, as we were saying, with, with uh, art and photography, but also um, description, representation back in the in the metropole. Even sort of the, the relationship between something like gender and the Arctic is is interesting in that it was a space for masculine heroism quite often. It became a space that was that was almost appropriated for male activities. And so I think that these kind of these cultural, social perspectives and, and considering their their um the historical depth of them um is vital to understand how we've ended up with the Arctic that we have and the way of thinking, the ways of thinking about the Arctic that we have today. Really, I think that's a, a crucial point is the way the Arctic is gendered. Uh, and it's not just that it's a space uh, in which male explorers and protagonists are privileged. I think it's also interesting to look at the way in which the Arctic is gendered as a space, as an imagined space. And I mean, throughout the history of Arctic exploration. I'm sure Christian uh, has a lot more to say about this than I do, but from what I've understood, the way it's been framed has been um, as a female space. So on one hand, the Arctic is this virginal maiden that is to be penetrated, explored, and protected by the male explorer. Um, On the other hand, the Arctic is also the cruel ice queen that uh, the the explorer must conquer and subdue. And so fundamentally, the, the space of the Arctic is, is also gendered. That's a great point, Greg. Thanks for bringing it up. I think this is uh, one of the dimensions that hasn't been explored enough in the research and definitely has a lot of potential. I think uh, a lot of what you pointed out actually ties to, uh, to the concept of nature and the idea of femininity of nature, like of nature be- being something feminine. I think the idea of the, the Arctic as a as a natural space is quite an interesting as well. One as well. Um, I know there's the Arctic Cultures Research Group at um, the Scott Polar Research Institute at Cambridge um, here in the UK. Um, they've kind of set out to explicitly challenge this idea that. The Arctic is a natural space, and very much approach it from a from a, um, a cultural uh, standpoint. Um, and I mean, as as, as Luba and Greg, you've both said, this is this is their kind of gendered assumptions in this idea that the Arctic is natural. The one further thing I'd say on that is the idea that because the Arctic is a space that is seen purely through its nature, that people living there are seen as kind of out of place. Again, there's a temporal aspect to that, that, that these people all sort of, once they'll quote-unquote catch up, they'll move out of the Arctic and become more more settled and and sort of implicitly uh, the European idea would be that they become more like us. Um, and someone like uh, Jen Rose Smith has written really interestingly about this recently, about the idea that, that uh, people who live in icy spaces are seen as, as out of place or somehow... Um, somehow sort of doing not doing it wrong exactly but they're they're uh somewhere that's that's unnatural for people to be i suppose it comes back to um and this is quite an important part of the of the colonial imaginary of the arctic both in in exploration going there but later when it comes to settler colonial governance of the arctic as well the idea that that people are especially Indigenous people, are out of place by being there. I guess these ideas also that the Arctic is empty or a static place or terra nullius, as, as the legal jargon would, would have it, is, is interesting because it's, um, it, it, allows, it allows the colonisation of the Arctic to, to, to take place and to 
think of the the Arctic as empty and without laws. And I, I mean, uh, of course, we all know that's not true. Uh, our indigenous communities, Arctic communities, uh, indigenous peoples had law and a legal system. And it's actually interesting to to see that actually this idea of uh, of the Arctic as terra nullius as a lawless space is still a narrative that we hear a lot in in the context of international relations now in that we we think of the Arctic as a place where international law doesn't apply. I think I have one last question to both of you. Um, you know, the topics that you're working with are very complex. And there are many approaches, there are many perspectives, and there are many ways to take it out, uh, out of academia and into the policy field, for example. And I wonder if you would be asked to name one action or one thing now that could be done to challenge the mainstream narrative, the first thing that you would do yourself to challenge that narrative uh, in practice, what would it be? How much money do I have? It's up to your imagination. <laughs> I suppose, depending on what we take this narrative to be, if we think it's one of, of the Arctic being kind of empty and unchanging, I think that's the one thing I really look to challenge is this idea of the Arctic being outside of, of time and history and, and the kind of normal processes that we see in the rest of the world of, of historical change. I think it, it's really important to think of the Arctic not as this kind of exceptional, frozen, literally frozen place, but as somewhere which has always been connected to the rest of the world. This is not just a new thing with pollution and temperature change. This is something that's always happened through, through trade, through colonialism, through various forms of contact. I think that's the thing I'd want to challenge the most is this idea that the Arctic has always been kind of out of sight and out of mind and not not of much interest as part as except as a as a wilderness or as a landscape, but to really think of it as an active participant part of of global history, um, transnational histories, and of course prioritizing and amplifying indigenous accounts of of Arctic histories is a is a brilliant way to do that and a crucial part of doing that. And I think that's that would be my my kind of aim and goal for where I'd take Arctic research if I had the power and influence. Can I just steal Christian's answer? I really like that one. Um, if not, though, I how would I change this? I think very nebulously, just the notion of education, right? The practicalities, the logistics, don't ask me, I don't know. And I think this goes back to what we talked about a little bit earlier is just resisting the larger narrative and reminding people through education that the Arctic is a, a cultural space, a social space, and that first and foremost, the Arctic is, is not a frontier. Uh, it is a home, a home to many. Thanks. Those are great answers. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, where can people, and that's an easy question, where can people find you on social media? Can, do you have Twitter? Do you have Instagram uh, where people can follow your research? I do not have any social media, uh, but you can find my profile on the Arctic Institute website. So you can follow me on Twitter if you want to. I'm at CJ underscore Drury or just search Christian Drury. You should be able to find me. And you can also find me or get in touch with me through the Durham University website. I have a profile page on there with a contact form and I'd be very happy to hear from anyone who has thoughts on the Arctic they want to share with me. Uh, thank you a lot for your interesting insights and your ideas and the experiences that you shared with us today. That was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening.